From the Allen Slate Radio Institute at the Faculty of Communication and Design, this is the Ryerson Today podcast, where we look at the people, ideas, and culture of Ryerson University. You can also hear it on CJRU 1280 AM. I'm Will Sloan for Ryerson Today. On October 17th, cannabis will become legal in Canada. And the Ontario provincial government recently announced legislation that will allow people to smoke cannabis anywhere where smoking tobacco is also permitted. This is a break from previously announced policy that would have limited its use to private property. So, what does that mean for Ryerson? Well, smoking or vaping in Ryerson buildings and residences, and within nine meters of entrances and exits, will still be prohibited. But regardless of where you smoke it, to quote one cannabis smoking musician, the times, they are a-changin', and Ryerson is not immune. A little later, I'll be talking to Alan McDonald, Director of Health and Student Wellness at Ryerson, to talk about what cannabis means for health. But first, the Ted Rogers School of Management is introducing a new course for fall 2018 that seeks to give students a competitive advantage in the emerging cannabis marketplace. Called The Business of Cannabis, the course will explore a range of issues from financing a business to cultivating the cannabis itself. To discuss the unique Business of Cannabis course, I'm joined by its instructor, Brad Poulos, a professor, entrepreneur, and cannabis expert. Brad, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Uh, Tell me about the course. So the course is actually the first university-level business course offered in Ontario, and we're aiming it at two primary groups. The first group would be people that are in functional jobs like maybe accounting or sales or marketing or logistics and would like to move into the cannabis industry or maybe even recent grads from programs like that. And then the second group is people who would like to start their own business in the cannabis space. And given the fact that the course resides in the entrepreneurship program here at uh, Ryerson, it sort of makes sense. So this is the first course of its kind devoted to cannabis. Uh, It's the first course of its kind devoted to the business side of cannabis, yes. There are some college-level courses that are aimed at cultivators and that sort of thing, but this is the first time anybody's attacked the business side specifically. What was the process of creating something this new? So it's really simpler than I thought it would be, quite frankly. And I came up with the idea about a year ago and started to do a little bit of skunk works and asked a few people what they thought. And then around six months ago, I put a proposal forward to the Chang School, which is our continuing education school here at Ryerson. And um, that just simply went up through the approval process through my own department, which is the Entrepreneurship and Strategy Department in the Ted Rogers Biz School. And um, here we are. Much is still unknown about the cannabis industry and how it will operate. How adaptable is this course going to be? Well, the good thing is that the course is being taught around half by me and half by industry experts. And those industry experts, of course, are going to be right up to the minute with their knowledge of the the current rules and what's happening in the industry. What are some of the topics they'll be addressing, you know, the, the subtopics of the cannabis sure. industry? So we're going to start with the history of cannabis and we'll look at how the plant's been used for the last several thousand years. And then we'll also look at the more recent history, the last, say, 100 or 120 years, the period during which cannabis was first used very widely medicinally and then slowly over the course of the first few years of the 1900s prohibited in most Western countries. Then what we'll do is cover some entrepreneurial content because part of the process of this course is going to be writing a project for a a new cannabis business. So I'll be giving them some entrepreneurial theory 
and then we'll walk through most of the functions in a cannabis business. So we'll start with how you get a license, what the regs are both federally and in Ontario, and then look at cultivation and other sorts of processing facilities. So the sort of facility you would need to make oil or down the road, the derivative products that aren't available right away, edibles and beverages and the like. We'll look at how you market and sell cannabis products, R&D. We're going to have a tour of a cannabis facility. We're also likely going to have a tour of a cannabis lab. And then we're going to look at international opportunities as well. Will you be addressing maybe... Like, let's say somebody just wants to start a business making bongs or something like that. So that's not a regulated or restricted industry today. Sure. I would recommend somebody who would like to do that to take one of our more um, core entrepreneurship startup type courses as opposed to the, the business of cannabis course. How much opportunity will there be for entrepreneurs in this new landscape? Will there be a lot of regulation, uh, a lot of sort of hoops they have to jump through? Will, will it be a conducive space for entrepreneurs? So it will be a highly regulated space, but I still believe there is a place for smaller entrepreneurs. The places where they'll be able to play, I think, will be definitely down the road a year or two when we've got these other derivative products. We're going to see a lot of competition from smaller players there. But also the government has made available craft licenses for both growers and processors. So these would be smaller capacity facilities. They're limited to 200 square meters of grow space or the equivalent amount of processing, and the government has a formula for figuring that out. But this is an opportunity for companies to get in the space with much less of a stringent requirement regarding security of the facility and background checks on employees and, and the like. You know, for the marijuana industry, the broader marijuana industry as, as it exists now, from, you know, T-shirts to bumper stickers to Cheech and Chong albums or whatever, so much of it has relied on this counterculture edge, you know, this idea that because it's illegal, it adds kind of this dangerous, cool element to it. How sustainable is that going to be, do you think, when it's legalized? And is it even something that's really desirable for the industry at this point? So it's not sustainable and it's not desirable. Mm. The industry is trying very hard to make this a mainstream product. And that's why we're seeing products that are aimed at seniors, products that are aimed at women specifically, because from a medical point of view, there are certain conditions that women get that other people don't get that cannabis can actually be very effective treating. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing most of the companies in the industry absolutely shunning that kind of stoner mentality and really trying to treat this as the serious product that it is, whether it be for recreational or medical use. After so many decades of the official line on cannabis being that it's a social ill, why is this happening now, do you think? So there's a couple of ways to unpack that question. Why is it happening now? Because Justin Trudeau, in a moment of unguarded, um, <laughs> in an unguarded moment, yeah. said, hey, let's just legalize the whole thing. And yeah. he probably, if he was to be truthful with us all, probably regrets ever having said that. Mm -hmm. But it got said and he, he committed to it. So then if we look at, you know, how that sort of carried forward, if you look at the task force that was set, they were given about eight objectives, but the top two, and these are the two that just get constantly repeated, keeping it out of the hands of children and getting organized crime out of the picture. Mm -hmm. And if you do it right, actually this legislation and this, this regime should actually accomplish that. Where do you see the trajectory of this marketplace going for the first five or 10 years? 
So that's two different questions. I think the first five years and then the next five years are going to look quite different. So the first five years is really going to be about the industry establishing its a beachhead and establishing its credibility with the average Canadian. We're going to see lots and lots of different products that go well beyond uh, flour or oil or gel caps that are filled with oil. So all of those other derivative products, the things that you eat or drink, but also topical creams and and sprays that go in your cheek and things that go under your tongue and all sorts of even personal lubricant. So that's what the first five years will look like. The other thing is in the industry, there's going to be a massive shakeout. There are already over 100 companies that are licensed. There are several hundred companies in the queue for licensing. That industry can't sustain that number, and there just aren't that many good quality management teams out there. Mm. So what's going to happen is some of them will fail. They'll get gobbled up by the big guys or by other small guys, and those people will then start to become medium-sized players. So that's sort of what the first few years will look like. How about all these dispensaries that we see around Toronto right now? Uh, What's going to happen to them? Depends on who you listen to. So I think it's absolutely despicable that the provincial government has said that they're going to shut down all the dispensaries on October 17th and yet offer absolutely no retail presence in Ontario for six months after that. Hmm. But that is the plan. That's what they've said. If they're smart, they won't follow through on the first part. They'll just simply let the dispensaries be until there's actually an alternative. The thing that a lot of people don't understand is that the current medical regime requires you to order your cannabis online and then wait a couple of days minimum for it to arrive in the mail. A lot of medical users are taking advantage of the fact that they can walk into an illegal dispensary today and they can get their medicine straight away. That's going to go away on October 17th if we believe what the government has said. Wow. That's a major human rights issue. I think we're going to see challenges. Mm -hmm. I think if we look out, say, 10 years, the growing of cannabis flower is going to become a commodity, just like growing tomatoes is today. There are companies that make tomato juice and make canned tomatoes and make lots of – make pasta sauce and the like. And they buy tomatoes from either a wholesaler or from a farmer directly. And nobody really gives a whole bunch of thought to the provenance of those tomatoes. That's where the cannabis industry is going. Down the road, cannabis flower is going to be simply an industrial input. A lot of it will actually be turned into oil first and then shipped to people who make cookies and people who make beverages and the like. So we're going to see much less, I'd say maybe eight or ten years down the road, we'll see much less of a concentration on the actual growing side of cannabis. Tobacco is currently taxed heavily and there are laws dictating where it can be advertised. Will this approach apply to cannabis? Yeah. In fact, it's even more draconian. So cannabis medicine will be taxed 10%. It will have a 10% excise tax, making it the only medicine in Canada that actually has tax on it. Hmm. There's also an additional tax being levied at the sales level federally of a couple percent. And then, of course, GSTs and HSTs. And the provinces are free to tax it as well. So, yeah, there's going to be a whole bunch of tax on cannabis. And that's one of the concerns because if you go back to – I mentioned those two overarching goals of, the, of all of the legislation. You can't eliminate the black market if you can't compete with it. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to compete on all levels. You have to compete on product selection, which they're not. You have to be able to compete on price, which they probably won't. So I think the government still has a fair bit of work to do to actually eliminate the illicit market. What is the rationale for the heavy taxation? Is it a harm reduction strategy? There's a couple of things at play there. So one is recovery of cost. 
So the government believes that there are going to be a lot of costs associated with implementing this new regime. And so those costs have to be recovered. Mm -hmm. And then just simply the addition of a sin tax, which we're, we in Canada are very, very comfortable with. Uh, finally, getting back to the course, why do you think Ryerson is the best place to launch a course like this? I think a few reasons. So first of all, I am in the entrepreneurship and strategy department, and Ryerson prides itself on being the number one entrepreneurship school in North America. My department's actually done some very objective research, and we've determined that by most objective measures, Ryerson is the top entrepreneurship school in North America. This is the most exciting industry around right now. Those two things just seem to be a natural fit for me. Thanks for being here. I'm joined now by Alan McDonald, Director of Student Health and Wellness at Ryerson, to discuss Ryerson's approach to cannabis. Thanks for being here. That's no problem. Ryerson is emphasizing an approach of harm reduction and health promotion. Could you talk a little bit about what that means and what are the reasons for that approach? Yeah, I think Ryerson's made a good decision as far as taking a harm reduction approach. There are different choices that... Uh, organizations, schools, institutions can make when, when they're trying to decide how to help community members with substance use. And it ranges from the most extreme where it, they take a crime and punishment, student conduct uh, point of view where all substance use is bad. Uh, we're going to punish this uh, type of behavior. And that has all kinds of consequences and ramifications. And would um, that include like alcohol, cigarettes, anything? You, you name it. Usually, yeah. usually it's uh, concentrated on uh, alcohol and then Illegal drugs, and now in mm -hmm. our case, cannabis will be uh, will be one of the legal substances in Ontario. But uh, yeah, usually it's alcohol and illegal drugs is when this approach is is taken. So that's one extreme, and then the other end of the spectrum would be this this harm reduction, health promotion approach, with this idea that um, you know people, community members, student staff, faculty are going to use different substances, whether it's alcohol, tobacco, cannabis, sugar, energy drinks. And really, instead of taking a crime and punishment approach, let's inform the community of the of the risks associated with using these substances, whether they're health and well-being related risks, social risks that are associated with, with using these behaviors, and then putting other structures in place to encourage healthy behaviors when it comes to ingesting substances, and then uh, allowing the community to make decisions from there. There's been really good evidence from different jurisdictions. Many people have probably heard about the Portugal example being one, but there are other jurisdictions as well where laws have either been reduced or restrictions have been lessened and the uptick of drug use has been uh, minimal or the use of substances has actually gone down. So from our point of view in student health and wellness at Ryerson and from other departments, uh, you know, taking the harm reduction, health promotion direction is, 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 a, is a positive step forward for the community. Is there any evidence to suggest that the zero tolerance policy works? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I guess it would depend on on what one means by zero tolerance. There is evidence, and I think there's great evidence from from tobacco, from from helping to people understand the risks associated with tobacco. That a really a, a multi pronged approach that's you know the World Health Organization and different types of organizations really advocate for, not only focusing on uh, helping individuals determine how they should ingest or what types of substance that they should ingest, but their you know policy and and other structural type mechanisms that can help individuals and the community use less tobacco. So, you know, packaging, as an example, is something that the World Health Organization recommends. And I'm sure most people listening have seen the, the packages for packs of cigarettes, you know, with the warning labels. Taxation policy is another very common thing that, uh, that's, that's done to help people understand that substances uh, might not be the best choice based on the impact on your wallet. 
So I think it's, I think there's, it's not so much that it's a zero tolerance approach, but there's, I think sometimes when people think, okay, we're just going to reduce harm and we're going to uh, use a health promotion approach that we're just, it's a, it's a laissez-faire, you know, let, let people just do whatever they want. But when you couple that with really good policy decisions and a really good smoking cessation program, a really good health promotion program, really good resources to help people when they do get in trouble with substance use, it's, it's a nice combination of, of, of interventions that can help a community uh, use responsibly. Out of curiosity, does Ryerson's approach differ when it comes to harder drugs? Yeah, it's, that's another good question. So the, uh, um, and I'm kind of getting out of my lane here a little bit, talking about the student conduct policy and other policy sure. issues. But the, I think it's a great question because it, it really hel- helps people understand the distinction between legal and illegal substances. So all of the so-called harder substances will still fall under those illegal drug category. And then those fall into a whole different realm of the way that the school will treat use in those areas. So now that cannabis has been moved from illegal to legal, now the decision that the university has made is that let's just fold cannabis use into the way that we talk about substance use, energy drinks, tobacco, alcohol, cannabis. It's just another substance that we talk about, the risks and benefits, mostly risks, (laughs) mostly the harmful effects of using the substance, but then the approach to illegal substances will remain the same. What are the common misconceptions around cannabis use? We've been talking to a lot of a lot of students, staff, and faculty about this issue when the when it became clear that Canada and and then Ontario will, would be legalizing cannabis. And it, there are a few that are out there. Number one, which is not true, is that uh, cannabis or marijuana is quote unquote safer than alcohol. There's growing evidence to suggest that the use of cannabis that there are um, just as many, just a different set of harms associated with using cannabis as opposed to alcohol. The other misconception that's out there is that um, regardless of age, cannabis can be used with the same effects. And there's very clear evidence to suggest that the effects of cannabis on people under 25, on the developing brain, and quite frankly, it's, it's, it's a similar evidence for, uh, for alcohol use as well, that the ramifications of cannabis use uh, on the developing brain is, is, is much worse. So for people under 25. I would say the third area where there's a little bit of a misconception is that we know how harmful cannabis actually is. And what I mean by that is because cannabis marijuana has been illegal, it hasn't been studied anywhere near as well as tobacco and and alcohol. Mm. So we can tell most people, and you see the guidelines all the time, you know, what's what's a less harmful amount of alcohol that one can consume, you know? certain amount of beer is the same as a certain amount of wine is the same as a certain amount of liquor. Like those kinds of uh, delineations and, and categorizations are possible because of how well alcohol has been studied. We don't ha- have those studies for cannabis. We don't have a, a sense of, you know, if you take cannabis with a certain level of THC, so THC, the, the compound I can never pronounce, but that's the that's the compound in cannabis that, that gives the psychotropic effects. If you take cannabis with a certain level of THC over a certain amount of time, that will have a harmful effect. We don't have that data. So if anyone tells you that uh, a certain amount of cannabis is safe, quote unquote safe, if anyone tells you that a certain level of THC is safe, I'd love to see the study that they've read because the cannabis is nowhere near as well studied as, as tobacco in that regard. I have to admit, I'm surprised it's not well studied given how long it's been around and how much ink has been spilled over it. You it's know? not as well studied and a lot of it has to do with it's an industry that has not been regulated. Right. Marijuana and cannabis has been studied. Mm-hmm. It's more along the lines of um, the precision of the strength and potency of the cannabis and marijuana itself. Because if you think about it, since the industry wasn't regulated and since it was more, perhaps more difficult or, or impossible to measure the different contents of the different 
types of cannabis, the level of precision that, that people can make in their recommendations around the strength and potency of the cannabis that was studied back in the day when it was an illegal substance and not regulated. There's less precision there compared to uh, since alcohol has been regulated and, and alcohol content is very clearly delineated and has been regulated for some time, the, there's more precision in the study findings over time. Are there any other risk factors associated with it? With cannabis? Yeah. Uh, Ryerson is going to have a few resources available, and one of them will be a, a Ryerson.ca webpage. Mm -hmm. And definitely CAMH, the Center for Addictions and Mental Health here in Toronto, has excellent resources for people who, who might be considering different, uh, using different substances. And uh, the most serious and perhaps least common uh, effects of chronic or constant marijuana use that gets a lot of attention is people who, who chronically use marijuana and cannabis are more likely to develop episodes of psychosis. And that's, that's mm. more likely in people under 25. Now, what most people will remind us of is that these studies, they aren't cause and effect studies, they're correlation type studies. So in other words, it, it hasn't been shown yet that use of marijuana causes the psychosis. It's this idea that people who use marijuana more often are more likely to experience a, an episode of psychosis. But what's also worth reminding people of is that the initial studies around tobacco were also correlation type studies. So for decades, the tobacco industry would remind people that there were no cause and effect type studies, that there were no studies that showed that tobacco use led to lung cancer until it was studied for a long enough time. So even though there are no, there are very few cause and effect type marijuana studies, these, these correlation studies are, are giving us pretty decent uh, um, evidence to suggest that these harmful effects are, are present when cannabis is used on an ongoing basis. And then, of course, there's decreased perception or, or perceive what's what's actually happening in front of you. There's with ongoing daily or near daily use, there's there's the possibility of uh, respiratory, so breathing type issues. And then there's, again, these are in the correlation category for studies, but there is some suggestion that ongoing uh, chronic near daily cannabis use can lead to decreased academic performance. And while IQ might be, a, many would challenge that IQ is an actual measure of intelligence, that, that IQ can actually decrease um, mm -hmm. over time with, with chronic or near daily use. Well, that I'm guessing, just as a layman, that it, probably if you have maybe a tendency towards depression going in, you know, it's probably something that wouldn't exactly help, right? Yeah, so exactly. And, you, and you've hit the nail on the head. There's this idea that if I have a diagnosis of depression or if I have depressive symptoms, then am I more likely to then choose to use substances? And then does that then further my symptoms of depression or, or anxiety? And really the, the people are just starting to tease out the, the cause and effect there. So. so at this point, like, let's say I'm over 25 and, and I were to ask, is semi-regular recreational cannabis use compatible with a healthy lifestyle, would you be able to say yes or no? I think it's less of a yes or no. My guess is that if you ask the CAMH people who have released, and this again will be posted on the Ryerson.ca website, where they have a, a reduce the risks type guideline when it comes to using cannabis. It's less of a yes or no. It's that this is the way that you can reduce the harmful effects of cannabis. And they go, it's actually a very, very mm -hmm. easy to read guideline. It's about an eight or nine steps. So it's things like, of course, which isn't your question, but the easiest way to reduce your risk is to abstain altogether. Sure. Then the next easiest way to reduce your risk is to start later in life. So you've already covered that. You said over 25. The next way to reduce your risk is to use a low THC content marijuana. So just like drinking a light beer, a Coors Light would be mm -hmm. a way of reducing the risk when it comes to alcohol as opposed to 150 proof uh, Jamaican rum. The same idea would be with cannabis using a low THC content avoid synthetic THC and, and cannabis. So they have a list of, and it's, it's, a, it's a stepwise framework in the way that they describe how you can reduce the harm. So it's, can someone over 25 
include cannabis in a healthy lifestyle, perhaps, just like they could perhaps include alcohol in that healthy lifestyle. It's We're less precise in our ability to say one or two drinks per day will lead to this, that, and the other, as is the case with alcohol. Places like CAMH and other type uh, institutions are starting to put out these reduce-the-risk frameworks that people can use. One difference between uh, cannabis and alcohol, I think, is that alcohol is more addictive, or is that just another misconception? That could be, and I'm glad you brought that up. I probably should have included that in, in that in that first list. Um, that's, a, that's a we're not sure yet. Okay. Yeah, that's a we're not sure yet. There are a number of factors that contribute to not being able to answer that question with as much precision as we would like. You have some studies which point to the addictive qualities of cannabis. It's a, it's a complicated question. Well, we'll leave it on a cliffhanger then. All right. uh, Alan, All right. thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. For Ryerson Today, I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening to the Ryerson Today podcast. To find out more about what's happening on campus, please visit our podcast page at ryerson.ca slash ryersontoday. Add the podcast to your RSS feed, or subscribe on iTunes. Please rate and review us on iTunes or contact us at ryersontoday at ryerson.ca with your feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter at RyersonU and Facebook. For more campus news, visit ryerson.ca. This podcast was recorded at the Allen Slate Radio Institute at the RTA School of Media in the Faculty of Communication and Design. <laughs>